Efficient and effective government operations depend on interoperable systems that securely connect employees, citizens, and partners to the resources they need. But many federal agencies are working across legacy identity, credential, and access management systems, which can create security gaps. These siloed systems also limit interoperability, which is critical for zero-trust priorities such as federated single sign-on. This environment stalls cross-agency collaboration, ultimately hindering the government's ability to quickly and adequately respond to mission needs and citizen service priorities. In this episode of Mara Talking, I'm joined by Brian Rosensteel, U.S. Federal Chief Technology Officer at Ping Identity, an identity solutions provider on a mission to make digital experiences both secure and seamless for all users. We'll explore how federal agencies can overcome the limitations of legacy ICAM to provide access to the right resources for the right people at the right time. Brian, welcome. Thank you for joining us today. Thanks for having me. Let's get started. Agencies are working to meet many requirements for information access and for information security. Many have legacy systems for identity, credential, and access management. What are the biggest challenges that agencies face with their legacy ICAM systems today? Oh, that's a hard question. No, I mean, the reality is, is there's multiple different challenges. It's not just any one singular thing that you can go and you can change and fix. So as an example, obviously we have legacy tech debt. And there are a multitude of important systems out there within the federal government that don't work with any modern protocol. A great example I love to give, because people always talk about, oh yeah, the government's so behind, they need to update things, and they don't realize the missions that they have to do. There's this individual who still has a job. The only thing they do is they come in about once every week or so, and they work with a system that really hasn't been updated since the 1970s. And their job is they come in, they write a little bit of that code, because it's the only person left who knows it, and they leave. And you say, well, that's ridiculous. Why are we still doing that? Well, the reality is that's needed for the Voyager spacecraft. It can't be updated, because that mission's still ongoing, and we can't just go out and reboot and restart that software, that satellite. So that's the problem we have in the federal government. We have a lot of legacy systems with strong mission needs, and yet we have to have them be able to meet the rigor of today's standards. Now, in the case of the Voyager spacecraft, we're okay because you need like a lot of really high-powered satellite dishes in order to be able to talk to the thing and know where it is and all of that. But for the other things, that's where we have to get a little bit better with how we approach our ICAM. So that's going to mean, okay, we need to understand that we need to think, have various applications up to current standards, whether that be like OpenID Connect, OIDC, or SAML from the Common Federation language or understanding, hey, that application we can't go in and change the code for, so we're still going to have to have legacy approaches like header-based authentication, but we need that rooted into centralized policy engines that kind of go and mirror and meet the best practices within Zero Trust. So that's part of the challenges. The other part of the challenge is actually a cultural challenge. And look, I'm totally guilty of being part of this culture issue, right? I've got you know, a long-standing history with MPKI, uh, that's actually where I first got started within the federal government. And there, we really wanted the authenticator to be authenticating directly to the application. There was a certain strength and security in that. And there's valid reasons for wanting to do that. But what it means is we start very quickly losing interoperability. Because I have to have the credential directly authenticated into the application. And while that might be okay for something like PKI, that becomes increasingly more difficult as we move to other authenticators that don't have 
this ability to authenticate away from the issuing systems, the credential management systems that issued those. Think of things like OTP, to some extent FIDO, depending upon how you're managing it, etc. So that's where we see a change in something called FIPS 201.3. So FIPS 201 is the standard for PIV, and we see in the revision 3 in section 7, they say best practice should be to no longer authenticate directly to an application, but instead to do that through federation. That is going to take a little bit of time for, I think, organizations to get used to as they do it. It's going to allow them to be a lot more flexible in their approaches. And we're going to see that modernization taking root as a whole. A couple other challenges I didn't get to as well, but I think those are really the two largest challenges we see organizations trying to overcome. That's fascinating, but I think that culture shift really is critical that you mentioned. So what is needed to enable agencies to provide secure, dynamic access for all users, employees, citizens, and partners, for example? You know, I think the key word within that is dynamic. Secure access, we can totally do. I can lock down systems. I can lock down things so hard that no one gets access, including the people that need to get access. And trust me, that is secure. But the reality is we have to balance that. We have to balance the friction you're going to put on a user with the security that you want to get out as a result. Now, how we do this is really that dynamic nature. Just because we have an application, and within that application, there is a portion that is very sensitive, doesn't necessarily mean that the entire application needs to be at that same standard. And actually, there are precedents within this within the government. We see this within the 853 controls. There's a subclassification allowed, allowing you to treat things based upon the data it's touching. So this means maybe I'm going to allow all of my users to get into a particular application. But if they want to go into the more sensitive parts, I start to get more restrictive. And I start to limit what they're going to be able to do and who can get there. Or maybe I will allow a user into an application, but only under certain circumstances. Right? So again, that's that dynamic nature of getting the context. This gets us away from just role-based access control. You know, who you are, are you an administrator, are you a part of this organization? Right? Those are all really important, and those we need to continue to enforce. But now it's about where are you coming from? What are you using? What multi-factor authenticator did you use? Did you use something that's phishing resistant, like a PIV or a CAC, or did you use something that's more fishable, like a push authenticator on a mobile device? That might be okay for certain things, but more sensitive applications, we need that phishing resistant authenticator. That's where we start getting in those dynamic policies. How do we do that? Well, it helps if you can run those through centralized policy engines. Right, so again, I really like federation, because federation allows me to centralize my authentication and abstract that away from the application. But I also like doing the same thing with authorization engines. And those are different, right? Authentication is not authorization. There's a great quote that I've stolen. It's not mine, but I love to steal it. It's that authentication is merely the enabler of authorization. So I need to have authorization engines that can take the information gained during authentication, what type of multi-factor, what type of device, et cetera, and then be able to enact policies based upon what that user is attempting to do and where in that application they're attempting to navigate. Wow, a lot of things to think about there. Where did the idea for federated identity management come from and how does it work? When you look at federated identity management, we go back and we had to turn the clock um, back to the early 2000s. And we really understood that authenticating application to application to application was getting to be just absolutely cumbersome. 
right? The number of applications were growing exponentially. The amount of passwords users were having to remember was, was getting harder and harder, right? And that was leading to very bad security practices that still exist today. I'm going to have one password because it's easy for me to remember. I'm going to use it across everything. So there were simple languages that came out, like SAML as a, a language, in order to be able to simplify that communication and be able to use that from application to application. Then there was a the notion, well, if I have this, I'm going to have some type of centralized engine. And so then we came up with the term federation. Actually, we can kind of trace that back to ping identity, shameless plug. But we really started understanding, hey, let's have an engine that is going to handle the authentication and then use these federated protocols and go into all of these different applications and be able to manage that. That will greatly reduce what that user needs to remember. We could still have that strong password, that strong multi-factor authentication, there's strong device signals, right? We've been modifying and we've been increasing the complexity within federation based upon the diverse threats and types of attacks that we've seen. But the core of that is the same, of abstracting that away from those applications for the user, making it a lot easier for that user to go from application to application and making it easier for an organization to understand, right? I got one place to go for logging, for authentication across my environment. That is powerful. I don't have to sift through the logs of every application. I should still be getting those logs. So much easier when I've got one place, though, and really better understand what's going on. Yeah, that's really interesting. So we've talked about identity management as well as authentication to agency systems. You've said before that authentication is the enabler of authorization. Tell us more about that. Again, that's a, that's a quote that I've totally stolen. person that I stole it from knows that I've stolen it, and it's totally fine with it. But what I love about that, so there's really two different events going on. Authentication, which is kind of a one-time thing. I'm going to take you from an unknown to a known state. That process is authentication. Then there's authorization. All right, I know who you are, but should you be doing what you're trying to do? The difference there is the unknown to a known state is kind of a one-time thing, right? As you come into the system, I'm going to go ahead and I'm going to interrogate you, and then I'll, I'll know who you are. That's the authentication. After that, it's a continuous process. Because you might be authorized to do one thing, but you may not be authorized to do this next thing that you try to do. So why does authentication enable authorization? Well, during authentication, I'm going to start learning things about you. Obviously, I'm going to know who you are. I'm going to know all the directory attributes about you. But I'm also going to start learning context of how you've come in. Maybe today you came in with your PIV or a CAC. Or maybe you didn't. Maybe you came in with a different type of authenticator. Well, that changes now the level of trust I have in your authentication. I'm going to learn other things as well. So maybe I'll, I'll plug into some other tools that are out there, maybe an MDM or something else from a device perspective. I mean, I even have a technology partner that can give me reporting on the chipset on the motherboard that you're using from that Windows machine that you're logging in through. There's a lot of power there because if there's a known vulnerability of that chipset, even though everything about you checks out, I may not want you to proceed, right? So I'm gathering signals about who you are, how you've logged in, and what you've logged in through, all of which I can use to feed into my authorization engine to determine if you're allowed to do that thing that you're trying to do. That's really what that term means. Yeah, that makes sense. Thank you for explaining that. The Federal Zero Trust Strategy calls for agencies to move from role-based access control to attribute-based access control for more granular authorization to access agency data. How are federal agencies approaching this move so far, and what advice can you offer? 
Yeah, so the good thing is, is that, in, especially in certain parts of the government, especially the more sensitive parts of the government, they've been doing a limited subset of ABAC or attribute-based access control for some time. In some of the networks where some of the more sensitive information resides, you know, in order to access that information, you need to have certain, well, lack of a better term, attributes about you, certain things that you're allowed to see. And they have mechanisms for enforcing that. So that is working for the most part. What we haven't seen is that proliferate across the entire government. And when we get down to the less sensitive parts, still important information, we certainly haven't been doing a good job of that at all. It's been more of, can you get access to this application? Yes, no. All right, cool, you're in the application, you're going to be able to see everything that's inside of it. And that has caused all kinds of issues. Individuals who have gone out and gathered way more information than they should have um, been able to compromise systems as, as a result. And so we see whether it's ABAC or policy-based access control, PBAC or consent-based access control, CBAC, right? All these terms mean the same thing. And that's about getting more and more granular. Now, the good news here, at least for the government's sake, is they've been kind of piecing together the tools over the past decade or two to make this shift to this granular level access work. And that means, so when you move from role-based access control, which I've kind of said before, right, it's, it's more of those what we consider to be persistent attributes about you, who you are, what you are in the organization, maybe your title, maybe if you're an administrator or, or whatever it might be, to the attribute base, which is all of those things, RBAC is actually a subset of ABAC, plus the context of how you're coming in, you need to be able to understand that context. So the government's been investing in MDMs, right? You know, for mobile devices or other types of systems. They've been investing in things to get risk scores, right? XDR tool sets. They've been investing in all of these different technologies, right? There's even some around behavior analytics, UEBA. All of these are areas that we can start plugging into our authentication and authorization engines. And that gives us data. I get data, I can make decisions off of it. I can make rule sets off of it. So really it's about making sure that you can integrate these tools seamlessly into your engines that you're going to be using for making your decisions. And the government is starting to do that now. There's still a lot of work to do. But again, what's nice is the groundwork's there. We shouldn't have to go in and rip and replace anything. We should be able to enhance and extend the investments already made and then just be able to, to bring in those central engines to make this transition a lot easier. Now, the last part of this that's going to be the hardest is going to be around the data itself. So one thing I haven't mentioned with ABAC. So ABAC is all around those different attributes and the context of how you've come in, but it's also around the context of the data. And that requires really good data tagging to do well. So understanding this data, right, has a sensitivity or this association, et cetera, et cetera. That's going to be very difficult, and that's also going to be a change in the way that we do data collection, that as we collect that data, we then need to go ahead and immediately start tagging it. So the government's working on that aspect as well. I expect that to actually be a greater challenge overall, right, that data management aspect. But as they do, the nice thing, right, we've got the tools in place. I feel pretty confident we can get most of the way there. As they start bringing in that metadata tagging, then you can actually plug that metadata tagging back into those engines, and that can continue to grow and expand as your organization brings on those new tools. Very exciting. Yeah, it sounds like it's all about that data there. 
the key part of this. <laughs> it's funny, no matter what model you really look at for zero trust, you usually see identity or users on the left side and then data on the right hand side. I knew someone from Cisco was saying they did that on purpose, that, that really bookends zero trust. And so being able to bring those two toge uh, together, that gets me a little more excited than probably what's healthy. Yeah, <laughs> I love that. We've talked about the importance of identity and access management modernization, but federal agencies continually face resource constraints. How does Ping Identity enable agencies to modernize identity and access management without creating rip and replace situations like you had talked about? There's a couple ways that you can go about this. One of the ways is definitely what we've seen from the movement towards cloud-based solutions. This is where we see our FedRAMP high offering, right, DoD IL-5 for those either in the defense industrial base or, or within the, the DoD. And that means you no longer have to worry about your infrastructure, right? We're going to handle all the patching. We're going to handle all of the updates, everything like that. You're just focused on the configuration, right? Standard SaaS. And that's why we've seen kind of cloud adoption really accelerated more and more. Because, you know, as someone who used to be a sysadmin, right, one of my first jobs in the federal government was literally going into super cold data centers and looking at blinking lights. And yep, that's still blinking green. Let's hope it doesn't blink. Oh, now it's amber. Well, it's still okay. Oh, now it's blinking red. I got to call someone, right? We take away that type of resource requirement and free up those individuals to be able to focus on other types of tasks. And that's really important because it's getting harder and harder to find IT professionals in general. ICAM professionals are even fewer and farther between, right? You have to be a certain level of, of weird and crazy to do the things that we like to do. There's just not that many ICAM professionals out there. So that's one of the ways that we can help. The other area is understanding cloud is not everything for the government. It can't be. By the very nature of the government's missions, there will always be a requirement to do things on-prem. Now, for that, Ping has really been investing in cloud technology. Now, there's a difference here between just cloud and SaaS offering and cloud technology. Cloud technology is understanding and embracing what needs to go into the management of SaaS. And that's about agile development. It's about DevOps. Well, we can take that and extend that to be able to accelerate what you're doing on-prem. We see this in the federal government now. We see growing importance around like the Iron Bank and Platform One within the Air Force. It's this understanding of we need to have a reliable and efficient way of managing our software. And so all of our software can actually be consumed through a DevOps process. And all of that is actually upstream of, of how we package it in general. So meaning we're going to go ahead and do all the development in our platform. And then we go ahead and we create that into various packages you can consume, whether it be a standard Windows executable, if you can't use a containerized environment, or the containerization. And that allows you to streamline that experience. So now, if I need to do something on-prem, I can hand you an image. Depending upon the agreement with us, we can actually hand you a pre-hardened image against those DoD STIGs. So now you don't even have to do the hardening. You can bring that right into your environment. And that administrative interface and look and feel will be the same regardless if you have that on-premise, using some type of a hybrid configuration, or if you're using my SaaS offering, which means as a former sysadmin. That means I don't have to train myself on the interface based upon what I'm interacting with. Really, in some ways, the environment where it's deployed becomes abstracted away from what I need to do to perform my job. That's what we call full feature parity. 
And that really helps as well. So again, I can take all the infrastructure away from you and run that within my, my hosted offering. And all you have to do is the configuration or you can run it yourself and I can help accelerate that adoption. And I can make it so that your sysadmins don't have to constantly be trying to figure out what features are available where based upon how they've deployed. Wow, that is awesome. Thank you so much for being here today, Brian. We've learned a lot and it's been a pleasure. Yeah, thank you. Always enjoy coming on. That's all for today. To learn more about iCAM and Ping Identity, visit pingidentity.com forward slash en forward slash solutions forward slash industry forward slash government dot HTML. Have a great day.